Hello again. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my name is Christopher Preble, and I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thanks again for all of you being here on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Um, and thanks to those of you who are watching uh, online. You get to uh, maybe you're watching online on a on a out, outdoors or wherever. But my primary job this afternoon is to uh, make sure that everyone returns to their seats. So those of you outside who can hear my voice, return to your seats. Um, I was going to say that I was doing a great job with the only job I had, but I see there are a lot of empty seats in here. So please file back in here so that we can get started. Um, I'm just going to make some very quick introductions. Uh, we do have uh, introductory sh uh, sheets with the full bios that are available if you haven't had a chance to pick them up. They're also posted, by the way, on the Cato website which you can see, uh, but I'm just going to introduce very quickly uh, three of our speakers uh, in the order, I, I think in the order they're going to go, with Marion and then John and then Paul. Uh, so the first speaker uh, on, the, on my, my uh, right and on the far left of the stage is Marion Tupi. And Marion, uh, my colleague here, he's the editor of humanprogress.org uh, and a senior policy analyst here at Cato. Uh, he's in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He specializes in globalization and uh, global well-being, the political economy of Europe and sub-Saharan Africa, and he's published widely in a number of different publications, Financial Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Weekly Standard, and others, appeared on television and radio, uh, and uh, it's great to have him here. I'm sure he's going to talk a lot about human progress, which fits very well, both the concept of human progress on humanprogress.org, which fits very well with Frank's article and writings. Uh, second speaker today is John Mueller. Uh, who you've already met. He's a senior fellow here at Cato and also a, re a senior research scientist at the Mershon Center, a uh, member of the political science department at Ohio State University. Uh, John's a leading expert on a number of different topics, most recently terrorism and the reactions or overreactions that it inspires. He's written books on the subject, including Overblown, Atomic Obsession, and recently with Mark Stewart, Terror, Security, and Money. He's also written a number of books over the years on uh, war and uh, ideas about war, one of which the book is entitled War and Ideas, but another one, which was also written 25 years ago in 1989, is called Retreat from Doomsday, uh, in which he described the obsolescence of major war. So far, so good. Uh, and yes, also, for those of you who are paying attention, John is an expert on dance. So to those of you who have read the full bios that I handed out, it is not a typo John Mueller is, in fact, the author of Astaire Dancing uh, and other things. Uh, and thirdly, I'm pleased to welcome back to Cato Paul Piller. Paul is a non-resident senior fellow uh, at the Brookings Institution and a senior fellow non-resident at the Center for Strategic Studies at Georgetown, where he taught for a number of years. He also had a 28-year career in the U.S. intelligence community, served as national intelligence officer for the Near East and South Asia, one of the most important posts, as well as deputy chief of the Counterterrorism Center, and he is the author of Terrorism and Foreign Policy, Terrorism and U.S. Foreign Policy, and Intelligence in U.S. Foreign Policy, Iraq 9/11, and Misguided Reform. After Marion, John, and Paul speak, I'll ask Frank to respond or comment, and then we'll open up to questions. Of course, Frank was introduced before, so I'm not going to really go into that again. Uh, if you arrived late or have no idea who he is, you can consult the bios that we handed out. Uh, but the short version is that he's the reason we're all here. So uh, I presume that an introduction is not really required. So, all right, Marion, with that, please, uh, please take it away. Thank you, Chris, very much. 
So I suspect that part of the reason why I was asked to be here today is because I edit the website humanprogress.org, which is a Cato website, and which tried to document uh, which tries to document human progress, not just in terms of political, economic, and civil rights um, and freedoms, but also in terms of uh, incomes, uh, life expectancy, education levels, prices, leisure time, and uh, all other things that make life. Um, interesting and worth living. The second reason I suspect I was asked is because I actually grew up in uh, communist Czechoslovakia and I was there when um, Professor Fukuyama published his uh, paper. Of course, we didn't get to read it uh, because of censorship <laughs> and I don't think the comrades uh, would have been all that uh, keen on discussing a, a work that, uh, uh, that predicted their imin imminent demise. Um, but by the time I got to college, um, the End of History and the Last Man were, um, uh, was a book that was a required reading, and so it is with uh, great honor that I find myself today on the same podium as uh, Professor Fukuyama. Um, as is well known, the, the first decade of the 21st century um, saw two events that struck at the core of Fukuyama's thesis. Uh, first, on 9-11, history bounced back uh, in the form of Islamic terrorists who flew uh, airplanes laden with fuel and people into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And uh, secondly, in 2008, um, we saw the economies of developed countries, United States primarily and uh, Western Europe, suffer the Great Recession. So instead of uh, a triumph of free market liberal democracy, uh, the world expected the clash of civilizations and even the end of capitalism. As I will show uh, today, economic and political freedoms are enjoying a very robust health. Uh, this is true not only in post-historical countries, but also in countries uh, that Fukuyama believed uh, remained stuck in history. In some ways, therefore, I will argue Fukuyama was not optimistic enough. My first point concerns free trade. Uh, according to the well-respected Economic Freedom of the World Index, which is published by the Fraser Institute in Canada, freedom to trade internationally uh, has increased since the end of the Cold War. Uh, between 1990 and 2000, it rose from 5.5 to 7 on a scale from 0 to 10, and it has uh, remained stable ever since then. On the one hand, this is disappointing. The free trade didn't become more free in the last decade. On the other hand, it is encouraging because um, it didn't decline as a result of the Great Recession. Now, the Fraser Institute data takes into account tariffs as well as non-tariff barriers of black market uh, exchange rates and also the freedom of movement of people and capital. But looking at tariffs independently, um, the picture about freedom of trade uh, becomes even rosier. According to the World Bank, the average applied global tariff on goods uh, has roughly halved uh, between uh, 1989, when it was roughly 14%, to less than 7% in 2012, which is the last year for which we have uh, available data. The most optimistic picture comes from uh, uh, the World Trade Organization. Its data shows explosion in free trade agreements. In this graph, the solid red line represents uh, regional trade agreements that are currently in force, while the solid blue line represents all uh, regional trade agreements, including those that are currently inactive. Now, as Fukuyama understood, uh, free trade has been instrumental uh, to the rise of the West. Uh, today, it is also clear that free trade is in instrumental to the well-being of the rest. It is uh, therefore encouraging to see the appeal of free trade uh, transcending uh, the divide between the historic and the, uh, the post-historic parts of the world.
Africa, for example, is already a home to a number of functioning free trade zones. And in addition to that, in 2008, African leaders got together and signed the Pan-African Free Trade Zone. While this Pan-African Free Trade Zone uh, remains a little more than an ambitious goal, it is telling that the case in favor of free trade is accepted even in this most economically illiberal part of the world. Now let me turn to the question of um, free trade and peace. The link between free trade and peace is sometimes criticized. Um, specifically, skeptics argue that high volumes of trade uh, and the concomitant interdependence did not prevent Great Britain, France, and uh, Germany from going to war with one another in uh, 2000. Oh, okay. Uh, that was a Freudian slip there. Um, <laughs> in in uh, 1914. Um, now, this criticism ignores the fact that um, uh, for many years prior to 1914, nationalism and economic protectionism were on the rise in European countries, and European countries were actually moving away from free trade. Moreover, it ignores the fact that political and military leaders who led European continent to mass slaughter in 1914 did not have the benefit of knowing what the world would look like in the absence of free trade. Thanks to the World War I and World War II and the Cold War, we know exactly what to avoid. Now let me turn to democracy. As with free trade, democracy has blossomed since the end of the Cold War. Uh, the Center for Systemic Peace in Virginia collects a highly regarded and widely used data series on uh, trends in global governance. The latest version uh, of their data is called Polity 4, and it measures democracy in uh, countries um, uh, with, with a population of over 500,000 people, and uh, going back all the way to the Battle of Jena. Um, uh, in, uh, in uh, the early 1800s. Um, the last data, or the last year for which we have data available is 2013. Now, beginning in 1989, as you can see, uh, there has been a great uh, increase in democracies, and that's the blue line uh, worldwide, and the corresponding decline in the number of autocracies, which is the red line. The number of anocracies, the black line, or regimes where power is not vested in uh, public institutions, but spread amongst elite groups that are constantly competing with uh, one another for power has also risen. As with free trade, the process of democratization has spread into the historic parts of the world, such as Africa. In Africa, um, the 1990s especially were marked by a significant decrease in autocracies and a moderate increase in democracies, uh, as you can see on the uh, slide behind me. Of course, not all democracies are liberal democracies. To simplify, a democracy is a system of government where all citizens uh, get a say in the creation of laws uh, through elected representatives. A liberal democracy also allows for universal suffrage, but limits the power of democratic majority over minorities, over the individual, and it is characterized by separation of powers, the rule of law, and civil liberties. The Center for Systemic Peace differentiates between democracies uh, uh, along analogous lines. Uh, without going into too many details, uh, the closer a country gets to a perfect score of 10 on a scale from minus 10 to plus 10, the more it can be described as an institutionalized or liberal democracy. Um, in 1989, only 40 countries uh, in the world scored 8 or above on, uh, on, this, uh, on this scale. By 2013, that number rose to um, 72. In 1989, only one African country uh, Mauritius uh, had a score of eight or above. By 2013, Mauritius was joined by Botswana, Ghana, Cape Verde, South Africa, Kenya, Comoros, 
um, and Botswana. Um, in light of the reversal of democratic gains in Russia and the continued autocracy in China, some commentators have been tempted to despair about the future of political liberty, especially in the developing or historic parts of the world. And indeed, Polity 4 data shows that democratization has stopped in recent years. And according to the Freedom House, it has regressed um, a little. Uh, now, the Russian and the Chinese cases uh, certainly challenge the overall trend. And I will leave it to uh, specialists to discuss the impact uh, of the uh, Chinese and Russian model and uh, wh whether it represents to the current trends in democratization. My personal view is that Russia being an oil-rich kleptocracy is of limited appeal, while I see encouraging trends in Chinese transition toward a more responsive type of government. The spread of liberal and non-liberal democracy as well as free trade was accompanied by a remarkable decline in violence. Again, according to the Center for Systemic Peace, societal or intra-state uh, conflict has, re has reached its apex in 1990s, whilst inter interstate or between state conflict um, has reached its high point in the mid-1980s. Since then, there has been a remarkable decline in both types of violence, with interstate conflict literally ceasing to exist. To this salutary trend, we have to add other remarkable developments. According to the World Bank and the OECD, um, women hold more political power and economic power in the world than ever before. Um, in these two graphs, you can see uh, seeds held by uh, women in national parliaments increasing over time. Uh, a, a little asterisk behind that, some countries actually uh, mandate um, a number of women that have to be in, in parliaments. Uh, in Rwanda, for example, 50% of uh, parliamentarians have to be women. Doesn't make that much of a difference because the country is an autocracy and uh, uh, Paul Kagame, who's a man, holds all the power. But never mind, the, um, uh, the, the overall trend is there. Uh, obviously, more girls, uh, more, uh, more young women are being educated, even in truly historic places like Afghanistan. Um, in, um, uh, here we have the declining gender wage gap in OECD countries. That's the only place in the world that we have data for. But as you can see, the wage gap between women and men is declining. And so is the overall gender, of in, uh, gender inequality index from the World Bank. Um, in 1989, Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard University has shown that homosexuality uh, was decriminalized in 49 countries in the world. By 2009, that number rose to 83. According to the same author, uh, racial discrimination has been declining for a long time. That's the graph uh, right here. Um, but it is, uh, it is, I think, noteworthy that uh, racial discrimination begins to decline at a much more rapid rate over here um, in the 1990s. Um, so data suggests that we are living in an age of expanding circle uh, of empathy, uh, to borrow uh, Princeton uh, University's Professor Stephen Singer's phrase. Um, while intrastate conflict and religious conflict persists in parts of the world, the trends point to a growing acceptance of the moral imperative for equal treatment of uh, women and other races. And this, in turn, could, in my view, further stimulate trends toward greater political and economic liberalization. In conclusion, um, I want to say that uh, I just want to say that I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, there's a lot of human progress happening uh, around the world, but I'm not a determinist. Uh, the fight for freedom is an ongoing one, and there is no space or place for complacency in expectation that things will turn out for the best. Thank you very much.
Okay, I'd like to make just a few quick points uh, uh, looking at the Fukuyama thesis. Talk first about capitalism, what's happened since in the last 25 years, uh, then a bit at nationalism and um, radical Islam, and then uh, at democracy. Um, in, uh, uh, when Frank wrote the article, obviously he thought market capitalism had, had largely triumphed, and it seems to me that that really has held up pretty nicely. Uh, we've had two crises of international capitalism, one in the late 90s, particularly focused on East Asia, and then, of course, since, since 2007 within the United States and virtually the whole world. And those have not been fun or pleasant. But what we haven't heard, it seems to me, is the calls we would have heard during the 1930s uh, to get rid of capitalism. In other words, there's no alternative. What we have had, we have to have more regulation or less regulation. We have to tinker with the system. But the idea is to simply keep it uh, working better. Uh, some people have pointed out what's really remarkable in the crisis that has gone through the uh, Europe Western Europe, particularly in the last few years, Greece, et cetera, is how little real class warfare, war, you know, people rising up and saying we have to get rid of the system. They're disgusted with politicians and things like that, but not necessarily with the system. Um, the, the, in, the, in the 1930s, it, with the, when, the, when the Depression took place, there was a substantial drop of international trade. And as you've just seen, that simply hasn't happened this time. Uh, there's uh, calls for subsidization of some businesses, but that's not the same as nationalization. And ideas that used to be really common, like wage and price uh, controls, and Truman thought that was one of the greatest things ever invented, uh, <laughs> simply don't come up anymore. So it seems to have survived in that sense. Obviously, it has its up and down. The, the, the capitalism never promises you a rose garden every 15 minutes, uh, but the, the, a real challenge to it hasn't been there. Uh, when Frank did the article, then he, he basically talked about democracy and capitalism. I'll talk about democracy in a second, but uh, uh, being, being uh, uh, seemed to have no real rivals. Uh, he did uh, speculate about two other rivals at the time and argued that they probably wouldn't be real rivals. And I think he was right about that as well. Uh, one of these was nationalism and the other was uh, uh, religious fundamentalism or extreme religion. Um, in the case of nationalism, he seemed to have been undermined, in particular in the 1990s, uh, with the, in particular because of the civil wars that were nationally oriented, it seemed, uh, within Yugoslavia. Uh, it was happening in Europe, and everybody was pretty much shocked by that. We just don't do this anymore in Europe, and now it's happening. But I think what basically happened during that period of time is it has not proved to be really much of a force. In fact, my analysis mostly shows that these wars were less nationalistic than small groups of thugs, basically uh, pushing their way around under sort of a general guidance of a, of a, of a, of a government that was either creating them or channeling them. Um, uh, Bosnia was a, a big terror of the year 19, uh, 1990s. Uh, in 1995, when the war finally came to an end, a lot of people, including certainly Samuel Huntington, who had now come up with the uh, quintessential nationalistic or ethnic argument, which was the clash of civilizations, predicted that they, they'd be back at it any day now. And since 1995, as far as I'm able to tell, there's not been a single ethnic death, ethnic warfare death, even in a pub fight uh, in, in Bosnia. Uh, so it basically hasn't, hasn't uh, uh, taken hold. And in general, as I think Mike Mandelbaum said, nationalism has probably proven to be a positive element. Uh, in many places. Obviously, Germany, there's nationalism in Germany, and it's worked to create a, a really uh, important and interesting and effective and, and trustworthy and uh, 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 internationally responsible country. 
Uh, similarly, for a place like Poland, for example, Poland is probably pulled together well because of Polish nationalism, in both cases keeping democracy and capitalism as part of their uh, uh, general rubric. Um, in terms of religious fundamentalism, I'd also underline it, again, agreeing with Michael Mandelbaum, um, that insofar as extreme Islam, as he put, calls it, or radical Islam has taken hold or had been put promoted, it's been largely rejected. The polls suggest by 90% of the Muslims in the countries in which it's uh, being uh, put forward. Uh, it's been radically um, uh, counterproductive. Even in the case of Iraq, the radical Muslims basically alienated everybody, which is one of the reasons the war came out relatively uh, uh, well. I don't know if it came out well, but at least they were be, uh, being put down because the locals were basically opposing them. Um, okay, one thing I might want to add, by the way, with respect to what uh, Mary said about the uh, Marian said about the, um, uh, uh, the, the relationship between trade and um, war before World War I. Uh, international trade at that time was taken to be a good argument for war because the <laughs> argument was we really love want, and want to have war because war is where you get your manhood put forward and so forth. But the problem is a lot of people get killed. So consequently, international connections are really good because you can have neat, short, bloody wars where there isn't all that much bloodshed, but you, you still get manhood and honor uh, uh, facet because of the international connections, meaning that these wars can't go on for very long. So in many respects, it was used as a, and no one, of course, makes that argument anymore. Okay, finally, on uh, democracy, uh, my general suggestion is we shouldn't take it so seriously. Uh, <laughs> that basically it's really not a very good government, a system of government. It just happens to be better than the other ones. Um, and, you know, that's been said many times. There, there's a, uh, there's a um, rehearsal of the Mikado at one time, and a line one guy was supposed to say is, oh, rapture, rapture. Um, and uh, Gilbert, who was directing the rehearsal, said, trying to tone him down, he said, no, modified rapture. So then I got and I said, oh, modified rapture, oh, modified rapture. And it was so funny, and they liked it, they, they put it in, back in the play. But that's basically what should happen with, with, with democracy. You really want modified rapture about it. It is really not very good. And the, the fact that it is taken over from uh, the question is, what's the, what's the competition? And the competition mostly has been a boneheaded idea known as monarchy. Monarchy was around for thousands of years, and it's patently an absurd uh, form of government. What you do is you allow basically a king, one person, basically to do anything he wants, by and large, uh, for his whole life. And then after he dies, in the case of hereditary monarchy, uh, you give the kingdom to his eldest son. You don't even pick the best. You don't even have a thing to sec check out. Okay, we'll give it to one of your progeny, legitimate or illegitimate, and we'll pick the one that's most likely to be a good king. No, it goes to whoever is the first the oldest son. So it's a very bizarre system uh, overall. And so and, and what, what's impressive is that uh, it lasted so long. And I think the reason it lasted so long until basically 1800 or so um, was that um, the uh, Plato's argument was seen to be basically true. Um, everybody accepted. Basically, what you, if you let the great unwashed vote, as Lincoln calls them, called them um, then what they'll do is they'll gang up together, probably under the impact of, uh, uh, under the influence of demagogues, and they will then steal the money from rich people. And so rich people, therefore, thought that's a really powerful argument, and so therefore they didn't want that to happen. Uh, what happened in the United States, and it was called the American Experiment, was you basically had broad-based, they started very small, and they expanded the, uh, the uh, scope of the suffrage, 
Uh, and it turned out rich people were really pretty good at, at staying in. So, it, so you could have democracy and rich people didn't get confiscated out of existence. In fact, Lenin, uh, Vladimir, not John, said the only way you can basically get rid of capitalist class is to have a violent revolution. You can't do it democratically, and I think he's basically right. Um, and so democracy, in my opinion, is not so much majority rule as, uh, as uh, a minority rule with more majority acquiescence. Um, and so consequently, the rich people have been able basically to state, you know, you can still tax them pretty heavily, but they won't, they won't go away uh, and, they, and they won't... Uh, 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 and they basically contribute at, uh, in, in that. And so basically the fact that there's a certain amount of favoritism toward small groups that can coalesce within democracy uh, is, is, a, is, a, is one of its triumphs. And that was not at obvious, obviously, to Plato. Um, okay, finally, um, the uh, issue uh, that uh, comes up frequently, well, two issues actually. One is in, inequality. Um, as Frank has actually mentioned in a few places, uh, in, there's both in capitalism and democracy, inequality is basically inevitable because they leave people free to compete. And some people are simply going to do better at that, sometimes because they're better skilled, but sometimes because they're just simply more lucky. Uh, John Rockefeller made a ton of money. The biggest ton of money he made was after he had retired, someone else invented the internal combustion engine, which uses gasoline, which was a waste product that he had from his uh, effort to try to create kerosene. Uh, okay, so he was a good businessman. He worked really hard, but so did a lot of other ones. So some, some are being successful and some not. So a fair amount of inequality is necessarily uh, uh, there uh, overall. Um, the, um, okay, finally, my last point on this is, uh, uh, maybe Frank would want to chime in on this, about the failure of governance under democracies, including the one we're in. Um, and the, uh, uh, in that, basically, the question is, when was the country well-governed? Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, founding far, the founding fathers, founding farmers, I sometimes call them, uh, created a country um, which, in which they punted on many issues. We finally got James Madison, one of the main farming, uh, founding farmers, uh, to, uh, into the presidency, and he got the country into perhaps the world's stupidest war, the War of 1812. <laughs> um, and, so, and, and the main problem during that period of time was the issue of slavery. And they couldn't solve, they were gridlocked on it for 60 years, and they only, or 70 years, and they only got rid of it through a catastrophic war that cost 600,000 lives and let it, left a scar in the country for 100 years. Um, so the, the issue, this is not sort of democracy working really well and you have this sort of bad thing for four years and then it goes back, but it means that basically democracy failed, governance failed big time. Then after that period of time, slavery was gone, but there are now 100 years in which basically there was what uh, Gunnar Myrdal, the, um, the uh, uh, Swedish political scientist once called the American Dilemma. Uh, blacks were still basically discriminated. It wasn't slavery, but it was complicated. It is both North and South, worst in the South. And that was finally resolved, basically, only after 100 years of essentially gridlock on that issue. In other words, bad governance, a clear problem, a clear democratic default, and it took 100 years to get rid of it. So I'm, I do not want to raise a lot of payons to the George W. Bush administration or to the Obama administration about magnificent governance, uh, since we, all you have to do is read the occasional headline and you find that to be a problem. Uh, but I do want to suggest that um, 
uh, uh, democracy mostly doesn't work very well. It does work better than its ridiculously absurd uh, competitors, uh, but that we shouldn't expect it to really, uh, uh, you should really show me where it really works fantastically well, and that doesn't seem to be the case very often. Okay, thank you. While, while Paul is coming up to the podium, I should remember yet another book that John wrote along that, those lines, Capitalism, Democracy, and Ralph's Pretty Good, Pretty Good Grocery, which also gets to some of the issues you talked about in terms of democracy being only, is only better than the alternatives. Okay, good afternoon. Um, Frank's uh, thesis and argument is an excellent example of uh, an intellectual argument fitting so nicely with the events of the time, and of course the events were the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, and that's the main reason certainly it caught fire. I think another reason it caught fire is one that Adam Garfinkel already uh, touched on, the fact that Frank, of course, was using a very narrow definition of, of uh, history, and most people, and most people are not political philosophers, uh, use the uh, small-age history to uh, connote a lot more things, so they see all that small-age history taking place out there, and say, hey, what's happening? Uh, Frank's response that, well, that's not what I was arguing, is of course quite correct, but I think those who uh, have never had an investment in evaluating Hegel and take the, uh, the broader view of history with a small h are entitled to make a couple of other comments. One is that all that activity in the material world and not just the ideological world really does matter a lot, both as a matter of intellectual explanation and even more so as a matter of policy. And secondly, even if one accepts uh, the concept, uh, part of Frank's argument, that in the long run, the activity in the material world will come in line with how the ideological um, contest has been resolved, uh, and that in the meantime, what we're seeing is just sort of the work of uh, historical laggards who haven't gotten with the program, uh, I think it's appropriate at some time to, to invoke the Keynesian retort that in the long run, we are all dead. Now, I want to raise those, a couple other points that do take Frank's um, original thesis uh, on its own terms about ideological competition. Um, he certainly is correct uh, that the main competition between uh, liberal free market democracy and the principal opposition of the last couple of centuries uh, of revolutionary socialism, Marxism-Leninism, various forms of national socialism, that the former has won that argument. And I don't see anything in the last 25 years that would refute that. So he's on very firm ground there. Uh, I would suggest that some of the trends and developments we've seen in the last 25 years um, do reflect the influence of some competitive systems that Frank dismissed pretty quickly in the original article. And they've been alluded to uh, by John in, uh, just a few minutes ago. But I want to go back to them. One concerns religion. And I agree with Frank that uh, we really have to take a long view in, in discussing any of these issues. And we want to talk about long-term climate trends and not just this week's weather. But here's an area where maybe Frank didn't take long enough view. And you know, most of what he's dealing with has been the last couple of centuries, the 200 years from the fall of the Bastille to the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, in which we've had this, this great contest of mostly Western ideologies with an East versus West dimension. If you look back, not just over the last couple of centuries, but the last couple of millennia, then I think you'll see that religion has more often become, uh, has been the basis for organizing thoughts about how politics and society ought to be run and organized. And that shouldn't be surprising, given that if you've got divine will 
brought into play, you know, that's a, or perceived divine will, that's a pretty powerful um, uh, shaper of ideas and, and motivations. Um, we've had several of my co-panelists have made rather dismissive thoughts about, well, radical Islam doesn't have much support. That's true. We gotta deal with a much more, much broader phenomenon. You know, the radical tale is not the whole story. Uh, modern political Islam, particularly but not exclusively, represents ideologies that, number one, do provide a comprehensive way of organizing politics and society. Number two, do lay claim to universal applicability. It's not just today's Muslims, it's you know, who's gonna be converted in the, in the future. And number three, have broad support. And that third one uh, would not be true uh, if the Muslim Brotherhood candidate had not been elected president in Egypt. Or if several years ago we didn't have an election in Gaza that according to, or not just in Gaza, in the Palestinian territories, that according to outside observers was a free and fair election that Hamas won. So we are not just talking about how many people think bin Laden's ideology is a good idea. And I think we've seen a trend over these last 25 years of increasing significance and support for what I'm talking about, most prominently over these last three and a half years in the upheavals that we refer to as the Arab Spring. Now, the ideological lines of competition are pretty complicated here. Political Islam is not an ideology. It's more of a vocabulary that embraces a number of ideologies, some of which are quite compatible with liberal democracy, as some liberal Islamists take pains to argue. Others are not so compatible, but even for the ones that are compatible, the Islamist side of Islamist democracy is as important for the believers and the supporters and the people who voted for Morsi as the Democratic part is. There's a lot of history in the narrow Fukuyama sense, history with a capital H, that's taking place today, especially in the Middle East, not just between Islamists and secularists, but within uh, political Islam itself. Now, the other factor um, which John just raised again was nationalism. And as with religion, I think you've got some strong reasons not to be surprised why this is as big an influence as it is. It appeals to a territorial instinct that I think might still be in our genes. Frank earlier today uh, alluded to how the dignity and recognition factor uh, sometimes finds nationalism as a vehicle. Now, in his original article, he dismissed nationalism as a true competitor to liberal democracy on a couple of grounds. One, um, most obviously, nationalism by its very nature cannot be transnational. And number two, it, is, uh, it can be uh, uh, quite compatible with liberalism, is not necessarily in conflict with it. Those are both correct observations, but they lead to some other observations as well. To note that any one nationalism is inherently nation-specific begs the question, I think, of whether nationalisms, plural, collectively uh, have been an important dimension in structuring thought about, uh, about politics and society. National, nationalism relates, I'd say, to a pretty important dimension of organizing politics and society, especially what the proper or ideal uh, size of the unit ought to be. Uh, for organizing ourselves into governments. It's not necessarily incompatible with liberalism, but in fact, and we've seen a lot of this in the last 25 years, it is going against liberal democracy by becoming an ally of various authoritarian interests and causes. And I would argue that the former Soviet Union, since uh, the Soviet Union broke up, uh, does support that thesis in that what replaced uh, the previous dictatorship with a Marxist-Leninist ideology as its rationale 
has been at least as much authoritarianism with a nationalist appeal as true liberal democracy, not just in Putin's Russia, but in the other republics, where we saw a pattern of communist party bosses transmogrifying into presidents of the independent republics. We've got two of them in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan that are still in power today. Uh, the Ukraine crisis, as we've seen it played out over the last few months, I think is better understood not as the march of liberal democracy fighting against the historical laggards, but rather as a, a competition between competing nationalisms with a lot of tolerance for illiberalism on both sides, unfortunately. And just to bring things really up to date, look at the European Parliament elections the other day. And you know, one could interpret this in a way, and this, this interpretation would be very consistent with uh, Frank's thesis, notwithstanding that Kojev became a European bureaucrat, um, <laughs> as some kind of protest against unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. Uh, I think it's more explainable as a, as a nationalist phenomenon. And we've seen evidence of it, not so much in protesting the powers in Brussels, but also in other ways with Scots, Catalans, Flemings, and, and others uh, expressing uh, what I would uh, think is fairly described as a nationalist surge. Oh, and one last point looking at those elections, you know, some of the parties uh, that have benefited most from this surge have been, unfortunately and worryingly, some of the most illiberal parties on the continent. For an ideology to meet Frank's criteria and perhaps still to be a potent competitor to liberal democracy does not require it to have a name with a capital letter like Marxism, Leninism, or National Socialism, or to end in the syllable ism, um, for it to have an influence. I think, for example, and in addition to everything Adam Garfinkel mentioned earlier about non-Western ways of organizing politics and society. Um, you see today, and there's again a lot of evidence of it in these last 25 years, a yearning for strong rule, including strong man rule, in the name of security and stability. And I suppose if there's a political philosopher associated with this, it's Hobbes, but most of the people who have this yearning have never heard of Hobbes, and instead just want a safe, stable place to live with reliable services, and they want those things in many instances more than they want democracy. I think this strand of, thing, of thinking explains a lot in terms of uh, places like Putin's Russia or General al-Sisi's Egypt today. Then there's the China model, which has been alluded to, and as to whether the disjunction between free market economics and authoritarian politics can survive, I think perhaps the appropriate answer at this point is the same as what Zhou Enlai said when asked to evaluate the French Revolution, that it's too early to tell. Uh, but even though Marxism-Leninism may have gone on the trash heap of history in China as elsewhere, there still is a belief among many in China in this most prominent of rising powers that that model, today's model, not only will survive, but is the best model. And it, in fact, does have some appeal uh, among some people who matter in other places, like in Iran, even though I acknowledge that China is hardly a leader in soft power in other respects. Moreover, the main sources of popular dissatisfaction we see in China today, corruption, pollution, you know, are not ones that are inherently connected to the authoritarianism, but rather are connected to the rapid economic growth. We have corruption and pollution in democracies too, after all. Finally, and I'm kind of surprised we haven't heard more of this this afternoon until John's uh, most recent comments about economic inequality, which gets into it a little bit. I think we need to look at the political trends in our own country here in the United States over the last 25 years. And what I see is disagreement over the role of government that has become, if anything, sharper and more polarized. 
Now, those on both sides of that divide would all say they subscribe to the liberal dem democratic principles that we've talked about. But the disagreement is genuinely ideological. It has to do with issues of the fundamental issues of the role of government in the economy and the society. Certainly, there are a lot of protagonists in that contest who view that contest in precisely those terms. And even the democratic principles have at times taken a back seat when we see something like the abandonment of the usual way of trying to get your policy enacted by winning seats and winning votes, and instead resorting to extortion by threatening damage to the republic by uh, manipulating a debt limit or, um, or continuing uh, resolutions on the budget, that sort of thing. The pattern in our own politics also raises anew, as my one final thought, the question of to what extent that material world follows the history of the ideological battles, history with the capital H, or the other way around. And I would suggest that what we've seen in our own politics over these last couple of decades is a lot of the other way around. And I admit I can't document it, prove it, uh, but I think uh, the disagreement over the role of government today in this country, if we could somehow um, itemize you know, the, the, the sources of ideas on this, and I admit, admit it's impossible. If you looked at some of the opposition to more rather than less role of the government in the economy, for example, uh, I would guess that at least as much of that is uh, powered by, let us say, the economic interests of the Koch brothers as it <laughs> is by the clear thinking of my friends here at the Cato Institute. Thank you. <laughs> Frank, you're welcome to, uh, to respond to anything said on this panel or the panel before. Um, and, uh, oh, and look, we just got this from our friends at the Wall Street Journal. Oh, so, good. Okay. Uh, just in time, not exactly, but. Uh. Good. Well, thank you. So uh, I appreciate uh, that the organizers of this panel uh, put a lot of very sympathetic people on it, and uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine was saying that they went to a retrospective of Emanuel Wallerstein's work in which every single commentator spent the entire time trashing him uh, nonstop. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me that uh, one of my early presentations at the end of history back in uh, 1992 in uh, Manchester in the United Kingdom, it was at the trade union uh, or the Mechanics Institute where the Trade Union Congress was, was started. And there's a big room, many more people than this. And it all turned out that there were members of the Socialist Workers Party who had all been <laughs> mobilized uh, to come uh, attack me. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting um, a much more sympathetic audience here at, at, at Cato. So appreciate it. So I, I do want to say, so a number of the points uh, I want to just expand on and... and um, uh, and respond respond to uh, with uh, Marion's uh, uh, Tupi's um, uh, arguments. Uh, so, like my charts, I think it, he does document, in fact, you know, that there has been expansion both of the liberal economy and of, of liberal societies, which is <coughs> which is true. The um, the problem, though, I mean, one attack that you could make on my thesis. Uh, is not that there's a higher <coughs> alternative form of uh, organization, political and social organization, but that not everybody will get there. 
that liberal democracy, so if you can get to Denmark, that's great, but Denmark has really uh, got to be what it is because of a lot of accident and uh, <coughs> things that happened in the distant past. And uh, is Somalia or Nigeria going to be Denmark anytime in the uh, near future? Uh, and it may not be. Uh, and the reason for that is the intertwining of politics and economics that I think, you know, economists now understand very well that you need certain basic uh, institutions to get economic growth. You know, you need property rights, you need basic political stability, uh, and so forth. But that strong institutions are very hard to create in extremely poor, chaotic countries. Uh, and so you ask, what's the path for, you know, a Nigeria or a Somalia to actually turn into something even remotely? You know, how do you get it to turn into Tanzania or Indonesia, much less uh, a place like Denmark? And the path forward is not all that clear. And I guess one of the points that comes out of my last two volumes is that, you know, so everybody started out in this kind of a trap. This is the question that um, various people, uh, economists have argued, that there's a poverty trap where you need to do several things simultaneously in order to get out of poverty. And unless you're just lucky enough that they all come together, you know, it's, it's just not going to happen. And the truth of the matter is everybody was stuck at one point, including the Danes, in a poverty trap. And they got out of it through a lot of lucky accidents or things that weren't intended to get them out. So that, for example, why do you get a strong, uh, you know, bureaucratic government in places like uh, Scandinavia and Germany? It's because they were fighting wars nonstop, uh, you know, for a couple hundred years. And uh, that's what gave them the incentives to have merit meritocratic government and so forth. Now, I guess I'm not that pessimistic uh, in the sense that Unlike the first movers that first got out of these traps, uh, there's a lot of learning. There's a lot of social learning that goes on. And so even though the path for an extremely poor, conflict-ridden society to actually uh, uh, modernize its institutions is fraught with a lot of difficulties, I just don't think it's as, as difficult as it was for the first movers. And you've got an international system that's very supportive and you know, uh, transmits knowledge uh, and so forth. But I will acknowledge that it, you know, when you look at the depth of the uh, problems that exist in, in many extremely poor countries, uh, it's a real challenge and, and it's very hard to envision uh, a, a clear way uh, forward. Uh, so on <laughs> John's uh, very uh, amusing points about whether democracy was such a great thing after all and whether the United States has ever been all that well governed itself, well, that's true. but. I think that, yeah, you certainly don't want the Civil War scenario to play out too many times, right, <laughs> as a means of resolving polarized uh, disagreements in Washington. Um, and you certainly don't want it to take 100 years after the conclusion of such a war to actually get the policies uh, implemented. And so uh, I think that if that's the standard of... <laughs> of acceptable governance, that's a pretty low standard. <laughs> uh, and I think for me, the question is, if you look at this, you know, the course of American history, we have a lot of things wrong. Uh, we are hit by external shocks, internal conflicts. And then the country slowly but surely kind of rallies around and, 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 and fixes things. And I think the general thing we tell ourselves as believers in democracy is, Yes, democracies may be slower than authoritarian governments in getting around to doing some of these things, but we finally do it. And when we do it, we do it more effectively because it's based on a broad social consensus uh, and so forth. But it always happens. 
And um, I guess my view is I really hope that's true. <laughs> I really hope that's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been blessed in this country with, you know, the right leaders coming along at the right time, you know, all the Lincolns and Roosevelts and, and uh, Reagans and, 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 and so forth. But I don't think that there is a necessary process by which you produce the right leader at the right moment. And in the history of many other countries, you get the really bad leader at exactly the, the right moment to really screw things up. Uh, and so I, um, so I hope that uh, our uh, long-term, we'll get it right scenario is, uh, is correct, uh, but um, we'll see. Um, so on uh, Paul's points about, um, about religion and nationalism, my view of both of these phenomena is the following, that both of these are species of identity politics that can be used by political entrepreneurs to organize people, and that that's why they're powerful in the world. And uh, they both, uh, and I think it's correct to say that uh, both of them, uh, sometimes they support uh, um, democracy. So in the American context, I think, a lot of sectarian Protestantism was actually quite good for democracy, but sometimes, uh, as Paul said, they're, they're enemies. And I think that they are alternative ways of getting people to vote for you or to follow you as a political leader. And so what happened in the period after 1848 when you had the springtime of peoples in Europe and virtually every country in continental Europe collapsed, uh, you know, the monarchies gave way to street protests, and then the conservatives put back uh, the order, but there was a very powerful message sent that you needed to expand political participation. What happened in many European countries was that it wasn't democracy that became the most powerful mobilizational force, it was nationalism. And I think Islam in, in the Middle East uh, or in Muslim countries plays a very similar role today. If you want to get people to follow you, it's much easier to mobilize them over religious identity than over class. You know, class exists, there are trade unions and so forth, but religion is somehow, so this is, um, I love quoting this thing from Ernest Gellner, that's the wrong address theory, that this is why so many traditional Marxists were, were so confused by the rise of Khomeini and, and other religious um, uh, doctrines in the, in the late 20th century that, uh, you know, that they, they, they thought that you know, there had been this letter that Karl Marx had addressed to, to social classes, economic classes, but the postman made a big error and, and delivered it to religions instead. <laughs> and so the big mobilizational message didn't go to the workers of the world. It, you know, it, it, it went to uh, nations, and, and in, in the current Middle East, it goes to, uh, it goes to uh, religion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and so uh, nationalism really derailed uh, the progress of democracy led to a couple of really, really big uh, world wars, and it was only after an extremely turbulent uh, period in European history that you had the final emergence of, uh, of liberal democracy. And I really hope that Islam doesn't do that in the Middle East. Uh, again, I do think that there's a certain degree of social learning out there so that we don't have to repeat every single mistake that's ever been made you know, by a country in, in uh, in the past, but it is definitely um, it, it's definitely uh, a worry. Whether, and so I guess that brings me back to the final question that is really, I think, 
kind of key and interesting is can an existing consolidated liberal democracy, you know, Germany, Japan, uh, the Netherlands, you know, or the United States uh, lose its, its, you know, the quality of its institutions and, and, and really go backwards. I mean, we've not seen any clear historical examples of this happening yet, but I think uh, Paul is right that there are some troubling things around the fringes. So you get uh, a lot of these pretty liberal, you know, populist parties uh, uh, cropping up all over the place. Certainly, economic crisis, growing inequality uh, leads to, uh, uh, you know, gives, gives fuel to that fire. Uh, I will say something about the inequality thing. I, I don't think you have to accept uh, Piketty's argument that it's inherent in just the nature of capital accumulation, but certainly, you know, there have been fairly powerful arguments made that compared to other periods in uh, the history of the advance of technology when it, it spread, you know, technology actually spread relatively low-skilled jobs. The nature of information technology today actually concentrates wealth in, in, in a kind of cognitive elite and has been steadily eroding middle-class employment. And if democracy is, in fact, based on, on uh, a fairly, um, you know, trickle-down and, 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 and shared uh, economic growth, there may be a really big problem with a hollowing out of the middle class. And going back to some old form of socialism isn't going to solve that, uh, you know, for, I think, a lot of uh, reasons. And so that's something to worry about. Global warming is something to worry. I mean, if, if you know, if some of those predictions are true, we're all cooked, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there's not a, a clear answer, I think, to a lot of these, uh, a lot of these issues. But I do think that we should not be overly influenced by just stuff you read in the newspapers, you know, on a, on a uh, short-term basis, because I do think that there are these more powerful uh, trends out there in the world that, you know, have led to uh, what is really, I, I guess this was the hard thing to get through people's heads when my article first came out. People are really used to being pessimistic. <laughs> I think especially in the, in the foreign, international relations, foreign policy, I mean, there's no upside to being, uh, 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 there's a lot of downside to being overly optimistic. You don't want to be Norman Angel and say that everything's really great and then the great war breaks out, <laughs> something like that. Uh, in the finance, you know, there's a big downside to being uh, uh, overly pessimistic because you may miss out on a great uh, opportunity. But in foreign policy, uh, if you fail to predict something good happening, no consequence to your career. If you're overly Pollyannish, then you're dead. Uh, and uh, therefore, I do think um, we need to compensate for that and, and you know, acknowledge that actually there's a lot of pretty good things uh, about the world right now, uh, about the post-historical uh, parts of the world. And I think a lot of the other panelists have, uh, I appreciate the fact that they've all docu uh, you know, helped document <laughs> that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, we have time for questions. Um, and all I'd ask, uh, we have the uh, normal rules apply here at the Cato Institute. Uh, please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those who are watching online. Uh, identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, we adhere to the Jeopardy rule here at the Cato Institute, which means that uh, phrase your question in the form of a question, please. Uh, no speeches. So uh, with that. Uh, I have a hand in the back, very, right, way back. Where, where's my mic? There we go. I'm going to make my mic person run all the way back there. 
While we're waiting, I'll mention um, we, we did get news from our friends at the Wall Street Journal, and we do have copies of Frank's essay, which will appear in tomorrow's issue. It's available uh, after the event, and so I encourage you to grab a copy. I, although it's been noticed, you probably can guess what he said uh, based on uh, based on that. Uh, please go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Natalie Liu, a student of uh, comparative intellectual history. A comment on a uh, comment Mr. Pillar made uh, with regard to uh, some people or, um, appear to uh, want sort of iron fist kind of uh, government for security purposes and and all that, I think we have to be careful in making uh, such assumptions. To draw on a uh, platonic allegory of the cave, the image, just because we've been seeing it for a long time, does not necessarily equate the truth. Paul, since you brought that issue, I guess that's to, that's to you. Strong man theory, you. I would point to uh, Egypt, which I just alluded to in passing, as probably the single best example of what I'm talking about. And all right, I don't have poll data in my uh, coat pocket to pull out to tell you, but uh, a lot of the anecdotal data in terms of uh, comments uh, of people who have especially been expressing support for al-Sisi, who just won this election with you know 97% of the vote or whatever it was, um, after a coup in which the popularly elected president was overthrown, have voiced their main sentiments along precisely those lines. And one should hardly be surprised, given what Egypt has been through over the last three and a half years. I was not uh, arguing that this is some kind of, um, you know, universal trend um, that will overwhelm all the other things that Frank and, and the rest have talked about, but I do think it is a significant factor uh, that is driving uh, the ideas people have about um, about politics, and it's not, although this is what we see in the first instance, just uh, a way of winning votes. In this case, the general in Egypt uh, has used it that way, uh, but also uh, uh, it, it really has a, an additional reality in the world of ideas as well as the world of uh, the material world these people live in as to um, how politics and society are to be organized. So it's not universal, but we've seen some pretty important cases. And I, I dwell on the Egypt one as simply the clearest, most recent case. John, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I basically agree with Substantia that people certainly do turn to uh, uh, tyrants or dictators when they need stability. The fact that's one of the main reasons Hitler came in in 1933. Um, but it, in general, over the last, uh, say, the, since the 70s, uh, there's been a real decline in real t tyrannies. In other words, where the, the, lots of countries had strong man rule, they basically kept the, the, the peace and so, uh, and so forth, and they basically gone out. All of Latin America practically was run by various forms of dictators, sometimes rotating dictators. Um, and so the number of places where you still have real old-fashioned tyrants e existing is extremely small, or tyrant groups, you know, like North Korea or something like that. So there's been a general trend away from these these uh, strongman rule. Though certainly there's been some regression. I, I certainly uh, share the concern of Paul about um, about um, about Egypt. Uh, there on the aisle, and then I'll get you too. Yes, thank you. My name is Dominic Savini. I'm from the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board. Frank, you made an earlier comment this morning that you didn't know of any people that would like to 
I think, live under a totalitarian regime such as Iran. I believe something like that was, um, and, and, and I apologize for paraphrasing. I think I do know some people. I think I know some Iraqi Christians and Catholics who under Saddam Hussein felt safer than they did under this form of democracy that they have. That's my first point. And Mr. Tupi, some of your slides, very good and informative, but you know, it's, it, it reminds me as an accountant that uh, figures don't lie, but liars figure. If you take a look at Southern Europe and the uh, immense amount of deflation, debt, <clears throat> and the negative as, um, impact of the euro, people such as those that live in Italy and in Portugal will tell you that there's a shadow poverty that they never would have expected after World War II. Uh, so I think my question is um, to the panel. Milton Friedman made a point that out of, out of all the freedoms, the most important freedom was economic freedom, and that from economic freedom, all the other freedoms would follow. Uh, so that's my question. Um, either one of you take, there were two parts of that question, so. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how my slides um, implied that uh, um, I, I'm unconcerned about what is happening in Greece, in Portugal, and so on. Um, quite the contrary. I, I am an opponent of Euro, have always been. I'm on record in saying that, and I don't think it's going to survive. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a completely separate issue from, uh, from, uh, from the slides that are presented about democracy and, uh, and the spread of free markets. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, well, so as I mentioned, there has been this democratic recession going on for some uh, years now where there's been a lot of backsliding. And so we could go into a lot of individual cases, even in a country like Hungary that we thought had been successfully, you know, transitioned to democracy. There have been disturbing things that have gone on under the current uh, government. So there's no question that this is not a uniform, uh, you know, phenomenon. Uh, and I don't think it should make anybody less concerned about the fate of Iraqi Christians or, you know, any other community because there's, you know, God knows there's plenty of, you know, continuing persecution in the world. Uh, right there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good afternoon, Gilberto Amaya from Fair Trade America. Uh, my question is on inequality. Um, we all understand that there's some level of inequality to be expected from democracy and capitalism, but we're seeing it growing both at the uh, in, in con within countries and between countries. Do you see these, uh, Professor Fukuyama? Do you see these? as a sort of a growing conflict in countries and also as an eventual source of tension uh, between countries. Go ahead, Frank. Okay. And then Marian, I know, wants to jump in on this too. So okay. go, ahead, go ahead, Frank, you go first. Uh, I think that the between-country inequality is a pretty complicated question because one of the things that's happened uh, over the last two generations is a really big part of the world, namely a large part of East Asia, has actually caught up uh, you know, with, with the developed world and they've actually closed uh, income gaps even as inequality within a country like China has, uh, has, has increased. Uh, I think that what people are worried about now is that uh, there does seem to be this secular trend towards the increasing uh, concentration of wealth in um, you know, in the developed world, and particularly in uh, the United States and Britain. Uh, and part of that, as I said, is, I think, due to technology. Part of it is due to globalization. Uh, and part of it is due to, you know, public policy, because 
I mean, I hate to say this here at the Cato Institute, but I believe that one of the fundamental functions of a government is actually to redistribute uh, wealth, and, and every government does it in, in, in different ways. You can obviously redistribute to the point that it becomes very counterproductive and it kills growth, but everybody does it to a you know, greater or lesser extent. And, and I think that uh, you know, one of the consequences of uh, you know, relaxing a lot of the regulatory regime you know, that had existed uh, uh, you know, prior to the Reagan-Thatcher revolutions is actually to unleash a lot of you know, market competition that, that, you know, that actually uh, worsened things. What the, as I said, what the solution to that is, uh, is, is, another, you know, is another issue. But I do think that anyone that cares about the future of democracy uh, in the United States or other countries has got to pay attention to this issue because, as Aristotle said, you know, kind of a broad middle class is really important for the stability, political stability of of democracy. Maureen, you've written about this, so... Yeah, the academic research on between-country uh, inequality suggests very strongly that uh, international inequalities are, in fact, declining as uh, China and many other countries are becoming wealthier. Uh, the gap between uh, the West and the rest is uh, decreasing. You might want to look at Paolo Liberati's paper from the University of Rome or Sergit Bala's research or Xavier Salai Martin. Um, I want to just add to what, uh, uh, to what Professor Okuyama was saying. In addition to globalization, obviously if you have a product and you are no longer selling it only to 300 million Americans but 7 billion people around the world like Apple, um, you are going to make more money. Uh, there are other trends which are happening uh, in terms of domestic inequality. Uh, smart, successful people are meeting other smart, successful people at universities and colleges, getting married and producing smart, successful children. Um, and uh, it is not entirely clear how you can stop these trends within, uh, within, uh, within a free society. Um, one thing that I don't think we take into account, uh, Piketty certainly doesn't, is that uh, he looks at income... Uh, before taxes and before welfare transfers. Now, once you, uh, once you start looking at American inequality and take into account uh, the vast amounts of money which are being transferred to the people at the bottom of the bell curve or on the left side of the bell curve, um, and, you look at, um, uh, and you look at taxes, um, you realize that inequality is not um, as large as, as some commentators have suggested. Uh, there. Thank you. Uh, Sayed from Afghanistan and affiliated to Catholic University. Uh, I would like to uh, look uh, from a philosophical viewpoint and arise a uh, philosophical question. Uh, Professor Fukuyama, uh, you focus on the uh, evolutionary uh, approach in the history and the uh, situation of progress in the history, and you uh, are saying that the history of humanity, uh, human uh, tried to find a new idea in related to the culture and related to everything uh, and shaping a good government that the last one is liberal democracy. So liberal democracy is the um, uh, achievement of humanity after a lo long history of struggling. So my question is that uh, if humans start uh, to find a, a good shape of government and reach to the liberal democracy, why do you think they stop at this position and then you do not continue the history 
the history of a struggle for the uh, better mm -hmm. uh, government and new idea. Thank, Thank you. you. <clears throat> Okay, so, yeah, well, they may. I mean, they're <laughs> welcome to come up with an alternative, but that's the question, you know, I think we've been trying to think through is whether you can see anything around the world that would actually qualify as an alternative that would be, uh, you know, broadly accepted. And, and that's why I, you know, agreed with Mike Mandelbaum and, 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 and John that uh, in terms of universal doctrines, you know, there's, there's really not uh, uh, much of a competitor. Now, Adam Garfinkel made a, a point, which is that maybe not everybody wants to modernize. You know, maybe not everybody likes that. I remember I was doing work for the World Bank in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, where you have probably, the, it's one of the few places in the world where you have intact tribal societies. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, why the hell should these people want to, you know, live in Los Angeles? Because they've got these... Yeah coherent, you know, very traditional societies and, and you know, there, there's things wrong with it, but there's also good things about it, you know. Uh, uh, so I think that that's a, a reasonable argument that there, are, you know, not everybody wants modernity. Uh, but I do think that if you just look at kind of certain brute facts, like how many people are demanding to emigrate to Papua New Guinea versus how many people in Papua New Guinea are desperate to get into Australia, you know, there's not much of a contest. I, I think that people vote with their feet, and I think people, you know, by and large, want to live in modern societies. Uh, right there in the middle, if you can, right? Yes, right there. Uh, my name is Bill Klein. I'm a retired Army psychiatrist. I'm curious about the fact that 25 years ago, I don't think the terms big data or surveillance infrastructure existed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just wondering, and I look around the room, there aren't a whole lot of really young people who are much more immersed in this than I'm aware of, at least. But I'm wondering, does that fit into this discussion somewhat, particularly in terms of how it seems to potentially change the individual citizen's uh, relationship with both their leadership and with capitalism and with government in many ways that may involve new paradigm? But it, there, it just strikes me there's such big new concepts. Good question. Well, yeah, I think that um, uh, we didn't get much into this, but, but technology, well, no, actually, I, was it Adam? I think you talked about this. Yeah, so uh, technology, the advance of technology is not necessarily benign. You know, so I think that the information technology revolution in certain ways has been quite supportive of democracy, but uh, uh, in other ways, it, it, you know, it hasn't been. I think it has contributed to income inequality. I think it creates the possibility for surveillance that didn't exist. Uh, I wrote a whole book on biotechnology, which I really worry about a lot because I think, you know, the ability to manipulate people through new medical technologies gives uh, rise to the possibility of, of a lot of manipulation of people, you know, uh, uh, per se. Uh, so I don't think we can take, uh, you know, the the benign effects of technological advance at all for, for granted. Uh, anyone else want to weigh in on that issue? No? Um, right behind you, right right there. And then I'll, get, uh, then I'll get you down in the front. Thank you. I'm John Utley with the American Conservative Magazine. Uh, Mr. Fukuyama, when you say it's part of government's role to help distribute wealth or share uh, sharing in society, 
uh, we have a system in America where two areas, I'll say medical care and the EPA restrictions, they are very much responsible for this narrowing of opportunity of particularly the destruction of blue-collar jobs by the EPA. There's no mining is, is virtually allowed anymore out west, uh, the, uh, west of, uh, in government lands. That's, uh, those jobs are 60,000, 70,000 very solid blue-collar jobs. The EPA generally likes people to flip hamburgers or work on a computer. If you, if you make metal, bend it or dig it, etc., these kind of jobs have been shut down in America by the hundreds of thousands, if not more. Secondly, our medical care system is atrocious. 17, 18% of the gross national wealth, every family is what up to eight, ten thousand dollars for for this system we have. Half of that money is what other European countries pay for medical care. Every family could have an extra five thousand dollars a year of income. If we had a, if we restructured our medical care, etc., so it's not the government role is not to tax. The common answer to this in inequality is raise taxes on people, and distribute more money. It's rather the regulations state that does this. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, there's lots of ways that we redistribute. So even running a, a an impersonal rule of law is a form of redistribution. Right? We tax people to pay for police to protect people in poor neighborhoods when rich people could actually pay for this themselves and, and probably wouldn't need that service. So there's lots of ways in which we redistribute. Now, does the, over, does the EPA overregulate the coal industry? Well, yeah, I, maybe, maybe. I mean, that's something that you can argue about. But I, what I was just saying is that the level of uh, redistribution that the, the principle of redistribution is one that I think in a certain fundamental way is accepted in every uh, existing democracy. We may not be fully aware of the ways in which that happens, but, you know, it, it happens. You can argue, and I'm happy to have an argument over whether we've hit the particular right level, but I, I was just trying to make the general point that uh, if you do not worry at all about the distributive consequences of modern capitalism, I think you're going to end up in a lot of political trouble. That's it. Uh, right there. And then uh, on this side. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you. Gerald Chandler, this is for Mr. Pillar. Uh, I'd like some clarity for you of what you were saying about when to overthrow a democratically elected governor, a government. I mean, if we take the case of Hamas, they were elected, I think, democratically, but uh, they let the next election go by, slide on and on and on. When should we overthrow them or should we ever? In the case of Hitler, he seemed to have come to power at least for the first two hours uh, democratically, but very quickly he went to don democratic uh, methods and when should we throw him? So again, the question is if and when do you think we should overthrow uh, democratically elected governments? I haven't prepared a, a checklist on that, um, but I, I, I would just respond by saying it, it figures very well into what we've been discussing and to Frank's argument by uh, saying that what you raise and, and the issue of uh, you know, Hitler being elected uh, in a free election is one of the reasons uh, we have all that uh, historical backsliding and uh, why even though the ideological um, contest may have already been won, as Frank argues, 
by liberal democracy that uh, when it gets applied in different places, including perhaps uh, the destructive sorts of ways as it would in the uh, Nazi Germany example, um, the real world has a, has a mean, fierce way of intervening in the uh, ideological contest. Um, and so even I, as a confirmed liberal Democrat, uh, uh, would not say uh, once someone's elected, uh, uh, it should never be um, the last word on what to do. Uh, right there. Yes, sir. Thank you. Michael Finger. I'd like to come back to two points, one made by Mr. Pillar and one made sort of in response to Mr. Fukuyama, Mr. Pillar pointed out. We all know that the debate in the United States currently over role of government has, has become uh, sharper uh, and more, more acerbic and more polarized. Uh, Mr. Fukuyama later in a different context suggested that religion and nationalism are both concepts or isms that can be used by leaders to, to organize people. So a uh, question then that brings to mind is, is, is in, the current, in the United States currently, is the debate over the role of government a substantive issue or is it another ism that the leaders are using to organize people in support of other issues such as uh, income distribution or gay lesbian rights or something of that order? So, you know, where, where should we apply our effort if we want to move democracy on these problems at the con more concrete level of income distribution or at the more general level of role of government? Uh, who, go ahead, Paul. Or no. no. Well, I'll, you can go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I, I was trying to make uh, the argument earlier that at least for many of the participants in that increasingly intense debate, uh, the issues at hand are seen as fundamental issues regarding the role of government. And I argue this is ideology with a capital I, and it's part of history with a capital H. <laughs> um, and I think we need to... Um, go a long way toward accepting what the protagonists in a political struggle like that themselves believe, because that's their ideas, so we are in the realm of ideas. That was the only point I was trying to make. Um, and I don't want to try to be policy prescriptive beyond that, except to say that there's, there's some capital H history that's going on pretty intensively in this country. Frank, go ahead. Well, so I think in this country, there are alternative ways of mobilizing the same population that leads to some rather uh, interesting contradictory outcomes. So for example, a lot of white working class Americans vote Republican, despite the fact that Republicans have dismantled a lot of you know, protections and promote free trade and do other things that, that you know, uh, hurt their interests, but they vote Republican on, on cultural issues uh, over abortion or guns or, or patriotism or uh, something of that sort. Uh, similarly, on the left, uh, the left does not solely focus on economic inequality because identity politics is really important. So feminism, gay rights, you know, uh, 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 multiculturalism, all of these things also matter and in a sense have, you know, I would say diverted much of the American left away from, you know, their older focus on, on, on economic inequality. And I sort of think dissipated a lot of the, you know, the mobilizational potential that, that, that had been there. Uh, so I think, you know, things are actually very fluid. You can get people to vote for you based on a lot of different uh, issues. And what political entrepreneurs, brilliant ones do is 
figure out, you know, if that one doesn't work, then we'll try another one and, and, and you know, get support that way. Yeah, there may be something I find it a little bit confusing. It's they, People have ideologies, but the issue is not whether it replaces democracy, because what you're mostly talking about is people using democracy trying to get a point of view across, whether the government should be bigger or smaller. At various times, the United States has had, uh, you know, huge taxation, and it's cut back on taxation. Uh, so uh, Sometimes it's thrown homosexuals in jail, now it's willing to let them marry. Um, it's gone to war uh, grudgingly and stayed out of other wars and so forth. So a democracy is just simply a way of aggregating preferences. And if people are have different ideological points of view, like we should have socialism, we should not have socialism, we should have a drug war, we should not have a drug war, uh, uh, we should get rid of Jim Crow, we should keep Jim Crow, those are all basically within, within the structure. I don't see it as an, as, a, as an alternative to democracy, but simply using democracy to come up with some issues. The thing I have a trouble with is that d d democracy will necessarily give you a policy outcome. Democracy just a way to aggregate preferences, and sometimes some people win, sometimes some people lose. Uh, it, it doesn't, because your democracy doesn't mean uh, that you have to uh, endorse a certain value, high taxes, low taxes, or anything else. Um, can, can I add something on this point? Because going back to the original article, Frank, where you're talking about <clears throat> the way in which the competition between uh, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union and communism and capitalism and this kind of foundational principle. And, and you say, and again, this is the thing that was clear even in the spring and summer of 1989 because it was clear to people inside of the Soviet Union that no longer, that, that ideology, they, even they didn't believe it anymore, right? Hmm. And so that ideology was around a concept about how uh, resources in a society are allocated. And there's the one model, which is, a few people get to decide how the resources are allocated, and they parcel them out, and they usually do it poorly because there's cronyism, nepotism, and all kinds of other official corruption or unofficial corruption. And then they have the, the, the other way. And over the last 25 years, in the doc, I mean, not just what on, what Marion has shown on the screen, but what's apparent in in the the, the vast growth of global wealth. Mm -hmm. And that's a function of the victory of that economic model. Yeah. And the political model, again, we're still debating, because again, the political system in China, even though the economics are relatively liberal, the political system is not. But surely that's, we have to account for the fact that that, that, that concept won, yeah. right? And, and so the end, end product of that is, yes, some greater inequality, but it's also, much greater wealth, and even greater wealth among the people in the lowest quintile globally or in this country itself. That while there's greater income inequality, those people living in the lowest quintile are better off than they were 25 years ago. The, state, the data is, well, is incontrovertible on this point. Yeah, I mean, so I think that there, um, to be honest, uh, there is a kind of uh, indeterminacy about liberal democracy because, as I said, this is a system that is based on two separate principles, a principle of freedom and a principle of equality. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, there is actually a trade-off uh, between them because if, in many cases, if you want more equality, uh, you're going to have less freedom and you know, vice versa. And so I think actually a lot of our arguments, the ideological arguments, uh, in the United States have to do with the relative priority of freedom versus 
uh, equality. And the bare principles of the French Revolution or the American Revolution do not give you terribly good guidance as to exactly what that how you're going right, to right, right. make that, that trade-off. So even if what you say about you know, the bottom quintile is correct, you, know, you can still have a preference for more redistribution because you value the principle of equality more than the principle of freedom, but still stay within the broad you know, framework of a, of, a, of a liberal democracy. It struck me that the original liberals, the classical liberals, um, late 17th century, 18th century, um, were primarily concerned with freedom of opportunity, removing the barriers to people to, uh, to achieve their best within, uh, within their abilities. Um, and, and the job is not finished. Uh, we are empowering women around the world. Um, or rather the struggle for empowerment of women is going on, struggle for empowering social, uh, sexual minorities and so on. But um, when, when did we get away from the equality of opportunity, um, freedom to strive and to equality of outcome? Because essentially that is where the redistributionist uh, egalitarian state leads you. Yeah. Can I add one thing? Yeah, I have a lot of problem with this, sort of the idea there's a trade-off between freedom and uh, inequality or e equality. It seems to me that basically you're free to, to take certain policies which decrease inequality or increase it uh, without uh, losing any kind of, in, uh, uh, any, any kind of freedom. Um, and also, the, going back to what Chris was saying, you know, in 1750, the richest country in the world on a per capita basis was about 2.6 uh, times larger than the poorest country in the world. Now the difference is about 27 times uh, different. And what happened on that is a set of countries got rich big time, and a set of uh, poor countries didn't get rich nearly as fast. So you've got this huge gap, but the idea that there's something wrong with the fact that some of those countries went way ahead uh, is, is very questionable. And said so the argument should be, assuming you want to get wealthy, you ought to figure out how those rich countries got rich and then figure out how to encourage, to uh, develop the, uh, the poorer countries, which is somewhat, somewhat has happened. Uh, I have about time for two more questions. Uh, right there, sir, you've been very patient. Yeah, right there. Uh, my uh, name is Joel Mandelman. I'm an attorney here in Washington. Go ahead. 1983, A Nation at Risk came out. It seems that nothing has changed in, whatever, 38 years. The schools are as bad now as they were when the report was written, if you read the different studies that come out. In 1987, David Halberstam wrote an excellent book called The Reckoning, which traced the whole history of the automobile industry and how it internally began to self-destruct in the 1960s. And yesterday, General Motors is busy firing a couple of dozen executives because through negligence or incompetence, were busy killing people. They've had, and his book went back to the 1960s, so they had two generations plus to clean up their act. But again, nothing seemingly changed. How does a political system or an economic system have to get modified so that you can put a nation at risk, the report, into practice and clean up a company like General Motors instead of having the government buy it. Cars and cars and schools. Cars and schools. Anyone want to weigh in on that? Well, it's, it, the question is, have we ever been well governed? And it seems to me maybe we weren't any better governed now than we were in 1983. 
Uh, it's, uh, just rested on that, I guess. Well, yeah, I actually think it may be worse than that because there's some evidence, you know, that that a lot of institutions, have, the quality has actually deteriorated since the uh, 1970s, and that I think should be a worry that. Um, you know the so this is, gets back to this point I made earlier. We all kind of assume that at a certain point in a democracy, everybody gets fed up and they finally, you know, make the right decision and 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 fix things. Uh, it's just slow, but it, it'll eventually happen. But I think you're right that, you know, they're accumulating problems, and I think some of them there's just no obvious way. Uh, you know, like entitlement reform. I mean, <clears throat> given the current uh, distribution of interests and, and forces and the way our institutions uh, uh, empower them, I don't see how it's going to happen, <laughs> you know, short of a really, really catastrophic external, uh, external shock. Uh, and it's something to worry about. I'm not saying that it's not going to happen, but we need to worry about it. That is something that we talk about at the Cato Institute all the time. Yes, sir. Back there. Hi, uh, my name is Christian Bondelay. I'm a student. Uh, Speak up a little bit. I'm a student focusing on international relations and philosophy. So I'd like to ask Mr. Fukuyama a question about going back to your uh, philosophic genesis, uh, specifically about Hegel's concept of alphabung, which is typically translated as sublimation or to sublate. Um, as you all know, uh, basic Hegelian dialectic, you have a thesis and antithesis, one of which sublates the other, creating something which is new and altogether not like either the two bitch, uh, pieces, but a result of them. Um, so in the context of your argument in the end of history uh, and classical liberalism, how do you, th uh, the central part of sublimation is that a new thing is created. So after uh, li liberalism's victory over Marxism, communism, what have you, um, how do you think liberalism has changed since then? That's a good question. Maybe it hasn't. Um, I'm not sure that it has changed. I think a number of things have changed in the global environment that will affect uh, uh, these calculations. So, for example, globalization has intensified uh, since 1989. You've got, you know, countries like China that, that have alternative systems and, and provide, you know, big competitive challenges. You've got, you know general problems of global governance, terrorism, climate change, you know, so there's a lot of stuff happening out there in the world to which any system has to adapt. And I think one of the sources of decay is, is the, actually that failure to adapt and, the, you know, whether the ideas are going to be sufficiently flexible to meet those new conditions. And I think that's, you know, uh, one of the challenges. I'm not sure that there's so I actually believe Cogev. I think that, you know, there, we had this one idea in the French Revolution and it was victorious in 1806 and it was victorious again in, you know, 1989. And I'm not sure the idea is all that new. Uh, uh, I think, you know, what's, what's changed are the, uh, are the external conditions. All right. Well, that, um, I think now's a good time to draw that to a close. I want to thank, um, well, obviously, I want to thank the panelists today. I want to thank Frank for... Uh, for coming and talking about his article in both sessions today. Uh, I also really want to uh, give a shout out to our conference staff who's been very busy this week, but especially busy today, as you can imagine. Uh, and I also want to recognize my colleague, Travis Evans, who works in our Defense and Foreign Policy Department, who helped us out today. Thanks to Michael and to Adam uh, from the earlier panel. Um, 
We will be reconvening, if you'd like, in our winter garden, which is just outside the door here uh, in the entryway where you came in from Massachusetts Avenue. And also there are restrooms if you need them uh, on the lower level. Just follow the uh, spiral staircase down and they're on the, uh, down the hallway on your right. So thank you all very much for attending today. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.